Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So this morning we're going to continue in a series. We've been talking about uh, some of the things that are crucial to our mission, vision, and values as a church. We've been making our way over the last year or so through some of these things periodically. And so for the next number of weeks, we're going to be talking about what we mean when we say we want to be a people who are fluent in the gospel and for the city that God has called us to. And we believe in those two things by being fluent in the gospel and for the city that it is possible that God would use us to ignite and cultivate a movement, a gospel movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven and Polk County by sharing the gospel in word and deed. What do we mean by the gospel movement? And so that's what we're trying to capture in these in these um, sermons. And so we're doing it by taking some some texts that have been very formative to our church and continue to be so. And one of those is here in John chapter 12, really uh, verse 24, but just to get the context, we're going to begin to read in verse 20 and read through verse 28. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, John 12, uh, beginning in verse 20, we're going to read through verse 28, but Keenan on verse 24, it's on the screen behind me, it's printed for you in your worship folder. If you're at home and you're watching, it should be there for you as well, so you can get your eyes on this text as we read together. Let's, let's read this scene from John's Gospel. Beginning in verse 20 of chapter 12. Now, among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then Jesus turns inward, and we get this beautiful picture of his inward life. Now is my soul troubled, he says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, Glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So here's my question this morning for us as we think about this text together for just a few minutes that I want us to ponder and really come back to over and over again. How does God's work in you grow beyond you? How does whatever the work God is doing in you or the organization that you're a part of, the business you run, whatever it might be, how does God's work in you grow beyond you? Because if it doesn't grow beyond you, then you become like the Dead Sea, right? I mean, if, if it doesn't grow beyond you, it begins to stale and, and rot and begin to, to just calcify in you. So how does God's work in you grow beyond you into the lives of the people that you love into your spouse, your kids, your friends, into the places that you're planted. How does God's work over 15 years at this church, at Redeemer, grow beyond Redeemer? That's what we mean by a gospel movement. Um, to be a church that becomes multiple churches working collaboratively with nonprofits, the business community, and government for the spiritual, social, economic and so forth flourishing of the city. But how does that happen? How is it that one church becomes many churches that becomes a movement that can do that, which is exactly what we're talking about. 
I, I don't understand the physics of it, I'll be honest with you, but I saw uh, the movie about the atomic bomb. Um, why can't I think of the name of it now? Somebody help me. Oppenheimer, thank you. Like, drew a blank. It's a, a powerful movie. I don't, I don't at all understand the physics, but here is what I do know from a layman's standpoint. The explosion of a nuclear bomb occurs when electrons crash into the nucleus of a radioactive isotope. And what happens when that electron crashes into that nucleus is that the crash forces the nucleus apart so that that one thing becomes two things. And when that one thing becomes two things, it releases an enormous amount of energy. It's a process called fission. And what happens is, is there's a chain reaction because as the one becomes new, the new things also have electrons which crash into other nuclei and on and on and on until you get the mushroom cloud of devastation. But it's interesting to me that something as simple as one thing becoming two things that releases this enormous amount of energy that can become this massive explosion, that's exactly what we're talking about. And the word I use is multiplication. Okay, so one thing becoming two things. So one of our goals, one of our big goals here at this church is to see our church multiplied into multiple churches, into the formation of other churches, to see groups multiplying, small groups multiplying into other groups, to see leaders multiplying themselves into other people. And that is how you get a movement. Because again, when one thing becomes two things, then even on an atomic level, there is something about that, that process that releases an enormous amount of energy and it's the same in the spiritual life. Okay? Is that a good analogy? Can that like roll around in your head as we're talking about this? But in order to do that, we've got to make sense of some things that Jesus mentions to us here. There are three different concepts that Jesus is really kind of wrestling uh, in his own heart through that we need to wrestle through as well. And we need to see them each, talk about them each, so that we can get a better picture of what we mean when we talk about a gospel movement. And you'll see first in verse 23 that Jesus starts talking about this idea of glory. And then in verses 24 and 25, he shifts and he starts to talk about fruitfulness and what, or success, uh, success, what it means to live a successful life and what, what you know, ultimate success looks like. And then thirdly, he, he moves on to talk about discipleship in verse 26. And so if you just follow along in the text, there's a, there's a, a verse about fruit, about glory, excuse me, there's two verses about success in verses 24 and 25, and then a verse about discipleship in verse 26. Or if you want three images, they're the three parts of the outline that I've given you there. You'll see he talks about the Son of Man glorified, and then he talks about the seed bearing fruit, and then he talks about the servant following the master. And we just want to give some time to each of those as we talk about this, this um, idea this morning. Okay, so first, let's, let's, let's start by talking about glory, because that's where Jesus begins there in verse 23. So that's the word that dominates the passage, actually. If you look there in verse 23, the hours come, Jesus says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then verse 27 and 28, he comes back to this word again. He says, and now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so you see it's this passage is dominated by this idea, by this word, four times. And in the Greek, the word is doxa, as in doxology, which means to honor or to praise or to, you know, something that is celebrated and made 
much of. And so when we think of glory, when we think of doxa, uh, we might think of the victory parade in Kansas City after the Super Bowl win, the good parts, not the sad things that happened there. Hundreds and thousands of fans giving doxa to Taylor Swift and <laughs> Chiefs players and coaches. Or, or, or you might think of the Eras Tour. Lots of glory there. Or of the coronation ceremony for King Charles in Westminster Abbey, not so long ago now. But when, when Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he was talking about the cross. About the suffering and rejection and indignity of his very public, grotesque, humiliating execution. And that means, I think, he is a very different picture than the picture that roll around, rolls around in our heads, which means that our concept of glory is warped, which is why we need to talk about it. Now, I probably overstated. Preachers do that, in case you didn't know that. We overstate things sometimes. It is more accurate to say that the glory Jesus refers to is actually his death on the way to his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation in heaven, all of it. But one of the lessons we're undoubtedly supposed to learn here is that there is no exaltation without humiliation first. That is the surprising part as you work through what Jesus is doing here. The title he chooses there in verse, in verse 23, when he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, it would have carried a very specific set of assumptions and expectations for the people listening to him here in the original audience, especially for the Jews, because... The Son of Man was a biblical figure, an apocalyptic figure from Daniel chapter 7 associated with Israel's Messiah. And the prophet described this figure, the Son of Man, this mysterious person there in that prophetic word as riding on the clouds in the sky after having defeated the beast, God's, the enemy of God's people, and we see him there in Daniel 7 coming before God, who is the Ancient of Days, in great glory and victory and being celebrated and being given a throne from which he will rule over the whole earth. I mean, it's a coronation scene there in Daniel 7 for Israel's Messiah, King. So when Jesus said, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, you can imagine the kinds of things the people around him who were familiar enough with the scriptures to know that scene from Daniel 7 probably expected were about to happen. Nobody expected the cross. Which is why there was, you know, there's so much missed. I mean, the disciples just missed it in many ways because it unfolded in ways they could not have predicted or imagined. In Philippians 2, however, the Apostle Paul, we read a minute ago, God, it, it says that God exalted Jesus because of his humiliation. It was because Jesus was God and became a man, and not only a man, he made himself nothing, Paul says there, a servant to all, obedient even to his death on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And then it says, therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. So it was... Because of that prior work of his coming from heaven down, that God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So Michael Gorman has referred to this as the master story of the gospel. It, a narrative structure that all, not only Jesus, but also all who follow Jesus also participate in, which is what we're going to talk about in more detail in just a minute. But here's what I want you to see if I could illustrate this. And I meant to get a picture in so that we could have it on the screen, and I just didn't make it happen this week because I was late 
was a busy week. But we like to think of life, if you can imagine, I'm going to kind of draw it for you right here in front of me. We like to think of life as this straight line to glory. Like wherever we are, wherever we're trying to get, it's just kind of this straight line. If I can just figure things out, it should be that there's like a Highway 90, Highway 95 with no traffic all the way right to this wonderful thing that I'm trying to get to, right? I mean, I read the scriptures and Jesus makes all of these promises. And so wherever I, wherever I am, I just got to sit around and wait and Jesus is going to work and it's going to be like just this immediate thing that goes right here. When in fact, life is not that way. Life is not a straight line. It is a storyline that ends with glory for those who are united to Christ by faith, but it often goes something like this. If I think it's this straight line between where I am and, and all the things that I'm hoping God will do or that God has promised me to do, often it actually goes like this. It looks more like a J. It goes... Which is a much more indirect route. Through a lot... And by the way, this is the bad stuff. This is the hard stuff. This, we like to think it's like this so that we can avoid all of this stuff. But this is, this, is the, this is the going down. This is the going down into death. This is the going down into nothingness. This is the being forgotten, the being mistreated, the, you know, whatever the case might be. It's, and, and Paul Miller has referred to it as the J-curve, as Jesus is dying and rising. So Jesus was God, and though he was God, he did not consider his godness something to be grasped, but he became nothing, became in the likeness of a man, obedient as a servant, even unto death. Therefore, God has exalted him. You see how that works? We talk about this a lot, but, but just in case, this J curve, dying on the cross, he's going down, then being raised up on the third day, ascending back into heaven, being coordinated, the triumphant son of man, given all power and authority and glory, which Matthew 28, the gospels end with that. And what, what Michael Gorman says is, and Paul Miller's echoing this in his book on the J-curve, he says, this is the master story. This is the story lived by Jesus and also because of our being united to him by faith, also all who believe in him, which is the force of Philippians 2, if you read it carefully. It's a call to enter into the same J-curve with Jesus, rejecting selfish ambition, Putting the needs of others first, which the moment you do that, if you're here, the moment you reject your own selfish ambition and start to put the, the needs of others first, guess, what, guess which way that takes you? Not this way. It takes you down. You see, in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus is shaping in all of us, his followers, what Luther called a theology of the cross, which he contrasted with the theology of glory. And basically, the theology of the cross just says this. It's the idea that the cross, which looked like defeat, was actually the ultimate victory over evil. And so if that is how God won the decisive victory over the powers of evil, then if that's true, then weakness is really strength, and strength is often weakness. Then the first really are last, and the last are first. Then humility really is greatness, as the Bible says. And it means that God is often at work, in the places where it seems like he's not at work. In fact, he's often most at work in the places where it seems like he's not at work at all. He works in ways no one even thinks to expect. A theology of glory, on the other hand, 
It's an attitude towards power and influence that sees things as directly related to size and marketing and aesthetics and so forth. You see a big church and you see a small church and you assume, man, God's doing a really great work in that big church. It's a bigger work. It's a better work than it is in this church because bigger is always better. It's the prosperity gospel. It's a theology a theology of glory that tries to minimize the most difficult and painful parts of life or move beyond them as quickly as possible because it sees them as an interruption to this wonderful thing that God is doing. But the theology of the cross says the way down, here's what is wonderful about the theology of the cross. The theology of the cross says that the way down the J curve is full of glory. And the bottom is full of glory. And of course, this part's full of glory too. But God's work that should be celebrated is not just the outcome, it's all the stuff all the way down at the bottom too. And this scene here in John's gospel really marks a transition because up to this point, Jesus' hour, he's been talking about his hour kind of cryptically all throughout the gospel. And he's been saying, my hour is not yet, my hour has not yet come. But in here, when these Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the feast, they asked to see him, something immediately shifts in him. It's, it's, you know, the scholars aren't really clear exactly what this is, but something, something moves in his heart. And he says, now the hour's come. Now the hour had come. And the hour was the cross. And what's fascinating is what you see him doing here, it's, it happens, it's characterized in different ways in the different gospels. But here in John, he says, my hour has come, which means that the hour for the cross is here. And what you see in Jesus is he's not embarrassed by it. He doesn't run away from it. He embraced it because he was ready. And he turned himself towards the cross. He says there, down in verse 27 in this lovely phrase, he says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. I mean, he knew all along this was coming. And when it came, he was ready. And if you, see, if you have the correct notion of glory, then you can do the same. If you go through a hard time, I promise there's going to be a temptation to think, well, what's this? What in the heck? Why is this happening? It's not supposed to be this way. What am I doing wrong? Or who's at fault? Or how dare God do this to me? But instead, when you go through a hard time, if you learn about glory the way Jesus understands it here, you say, oh, the hour's come. And you're not surprised. You're ready. And that's a big difference. And so how you understand glory really matters. But secondly, let's not only talk about glory, let's talk about success for a minute as we continue to move on. Because the biblical illustration for success from beginning to end is fruitfulness. And that's the image you see here as well. So Psalm 1 describes a person blessed uh, as a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And then it says in everything it does, in everything the person does, he prospers. In Isaiah... The nation of Israel is compared to a vineyard, both in chapter 5, and then we read just, just I think, Thursday or Friday of this week, chapter 27. And the, the nation is this vineyard which God has planted, which it, at first, even though God has done all these amazing things, it produces sour grapes that cannot be used for food or drink. But God, in saving grace, begins to work among his people in such a way that they blossom and begin to bear the fruit that God desires and you know, in the New Testament too, Jesus described his disciples, you and me, as branches of the vine, vitally connected to his life, bearing fruit by our abiding in him. And so we learn from all of these images that success is not just a matter of outcomes, but of health. The fruit is an indication that the living thing is healthy. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, every healthy tree bears good fruit. We have similar imagery in this text. Look at verses 24 and 25, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, 
By the way, truly, truly. Truly didn't work. It was truly, truly. And what that means is he's saying, I'm about to say something that you're not going to believe. The word truly there is just the word amen. Amen, amen. This is about to blow your mind, Jesus says, okay? You've not. You got to get ready to hear it before you hear it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So, I mean, what do we learn here? Well, for one, we learn success is also measured by the effect we have on others and not just by whatever impact it has on us personally. And this is true of Redeemer, since we're talking about Redeemer a little bit. We say, one of the things we say as a church is that we will measure our success not by our gathering, but by our sending. By the church this church plants, by the ministries that get started, by the impact we have on the city. But it means your personal success is measured also by the effect that you have beyond you. On the people in your life, not just in your performance. I mean, you have to ask questions like, what kind of people are your people becoming because of the person God is making of you? Let me say it another way. According to Jesus here, success is measured by your ability to multiply yourself into other people. God does not want you to remain alone. He wants what he has been so careful and so gracious to do in you to begin to go from you and bear fruit in others. Does that make sense? The other thing we learn from Jesus is how. How it is. Now we get the answer to our question that we asked at the beginning. How is it that, that, that the work of God in you becomes a work that he does through you or a work that goes beyond you? And I have great news. It's great news. How does this work of God in you become a work that he does beyond you and others? You have to die. If you were to go to Lowe's and buy a bunch of seeds because you were planning to plant a garden in the backyard this spring, but then you got busy and forgot and you go out into the garage month later, months later, and there on the shelf are the little bags of seeds. If somebody came back a hundred years later, they would still just be a bag of seeds. Unless you take them out into the yard and you bury them in the dirt that you have made ready so that they can go down into the ground and die, and in dying, burst open and bring forth new life. In the same way, if you just live for you, if you choose what's convenient or comfortable or familiar, then the work that God is doing in you will die with you. But if you are willing to be planted, if you die to yourself, if you decide like you see Jesus doing here on sacrificing for the sake of others, then God promises that the work that he does in you is a work that will begin to be multiplied in other people. But it's a choice we all have to make. Now, Jesus is, of course, speaking of his own death. He, of course, is the seed that must go into the ground. He must die so that others might live. I mean, this is the essence of the good news of Christianity. The penalty for our sins was death, and Jesus died in our place, taking upon himself the sentence of our sins and giving us, in return, eternal life as a free gift, totally undeserved. I mean, Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried. His body was literally put into the earth, but then on the third day he was raised and his resurrection power is now at work in all and through all who believe in him, raising them to spiritual life. 
from spiritual deadness and then ultimately working in them eternal life so that their own death is not the end but the beginning of the life that is really life. I mean, think about what we're reading in, in Acts. We're reading this, this amazing story of the gospel going all over the world of thousands coming to faith. Almost every time you turn around, there's a thousand people believing and joining the church. It was Jesus's death, we're told here, that unleashed the spiritual power, the nuclear reaction that made all of that possible. If Jesus refused to die, he would remain alone. But because he died, the gospel all the way down to today continues to go into the, all the world with supernatural effect. Every life is a seed. I mean, think about an acorn. It amazes me because I, I, in every house I've ever lived in, we've had a huge oak tree, which we, we fall in love with our trees. And then hurricanes come and knock them down and we grieve. But so far, so good in the house we live in now. But if you think about just an acorn, in that acorn, in that tiny little thing you could hold in your hand is all of the life and potential needed for that, that little seed to become a huge oak tree. In every person, in every single person in this room, no matter who you are or what your story is or how old you are, every person, in every person there is glory. There are gifts. You are a seed that God has planted towards a greater work that he intends to do in and through you in the world. And whatever roles you play as a husband or a wife, a parent, a friend, whatever job you have, you are a seed that God has planted in that place, not only to do something great in you, but for the sake of those people who are there with you. Which means that every blessing that you have has come to you on its way to somebody else. Every lesson Every grief, every suffering, every piece of wisdom that you've been able to like, you know, drain from all of the things that have happened to you in your life. If God has saved you, salvation has come to you on its way to somebody else. But in order for it to get beyond you, to not just come to you, but to come through you, you have to become the seed that goes down into the ground to die so that others might live. That's the message of the text. That's what Jesus is saying to us here. He's not just referring to his own death. He's referring to the kind of life and the kind of dying that his disciples are going to do as well. He says, verse 25, he clarifies, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And there to love your life just means to put your own ambitions and desires as the first thing. Jesus said, if you do that, you will end up with less. It'll be a tragedy. You will end up with less, not more. You will miss out on all the best parts of life, but even worse, you may end up being the person who gains the whole world and loses their soul in the process. But to hate your life, which is an odd way of saying it, isn't it? But again, preachers aren't the only ones that exaggerate. Jesus, this is what I tell Ashley all the time. She gets on to me, you're exaggerating again. I says, Jesus did it. If Jesus did it, I can do it. Okay, Jesus exaggerates. He says, hate your life. And again, he's trying, what hate your life, hate your life means just this, that is to prioritize God and others ahead of yourself. And it means you'll probably get less accomplished. You'll probably win fewer awards, but in the end, the promise here is that you'll have more. And all that you have given up will come back to you to be enjoyed forever. Which is what Jesus means by eternal life. 
Now, here's the thing we have to wrestle with. Nobody, nobody would have considered Jesus a success on Good Friday. Nobody. Even the disciples thought it was all for nothing. It was a complete failure. He was another false messiah. Not so. Right? Not so. We know that. Not so. Which means our idea of success needs to be shaped by what we see in Jesus here. But third, let's finish Third thing I need, think we need to talk about is so we get we get some content here about what what we how we should understand glory and really about how we should redefine success. But thirdly, we need to understand what Jesus means by discipleship here. And I have in mind verse twenty six with this. He says, "If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be." Now the word disciples actually not in the text, but there are synonyms. There's the word you see there, the word servant, and the word follower, which means Christianity. Christianity is discipleship to Jesus. Don't make it less than that. And Christians serve Jesus. Christians follow Jesus. Christians are servants. They are followers. They serve Jesus. They follow Jesus. And one of the things that we have to wrestle with, and we have to wrestle with it because we have to help our kids wrestle with it too. One of the things we have to wrestle with is that both those images, Christians as servers of Jesus, Christians as followers of Jesus, both images are opposed to what has become the cultural norm, which is to see life as a journey of self-discovery and self-expression. It's spiritually deadly, and it's an antagonistic approach to the Christian life. Dallas Willard sounded the alarm 25 years ago, now it's hard to believe, about what he called the gospel of sin management, that disconnected faith from everyday life because it was exclusively just about how to be forgiven. And he mocked, he, in, in a book called The Divine Conspiracy, he mocked the bumper sticker, which they are, I haven't seen one in a long time, but there used to be back in, the, back in my day. There is there a bumper sticker. You've probably seen it. Christians aren't perfect. They're what? They're just forgiven. There you go. Some of you have seen it. I haven't seen one in a while. And he said, he said, that's horrible. He said, because whether intentionally or not, the slogan conveys the idea that Christianity is just about being forgiven, that you can have faith in Christ that brings forgiveness while every other aspect of your life and every other respect, your life is no different from those who have no faith in Christ. Not to mention, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, because you won't believe me when I tell you, in Matthew chapter 5, guess what Jesus said? Be perfect. Look it up. I'm not lying. Verse 48, I think. I think. It's somewhere right around there. I mean, okay. How do we make sense of that? I mean, what, what, is, what does all of this mean? And so we have, we have, you know, we have something to wrestle with here. Jesus said, if you believe... You serve. You follow. Look at verse 26. Where I am, there will my servant be. So where is Jesus and what is he doing? He is deciding on the cross. He's turning towards his own suffering and death for the sake of others. And if we are to be where he is, doing what he is doing, then we have to take up our cross and follow him too. And that's not easy. You with me? Can somebody amen that? That's not easy. Yeah, it wasn't for him either, by the way. In the very next verses, we get a wonderful view of his interior life as he wrestled his heart into obedience. Look what it says. Now is my soul troubled, verse 27. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus was no robot. He understood what he was choosing. It had him stirred up. He was shaking on the inside, so much so that he had to start talking to his heart and then decisively act against his feelings. And let me just say, if Jesus... Christ, the Son of God, had to act against his feelings. Guess what that means for you? 
you're going to have to learn how to act against your feelings too. It doesn't come across well in the ESV. In the NIV, it says, it has Jesus saying it like this, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. That's what it says. It's like he interrupted, no. It was for this reason that I came to this hour. And I love that because he's honest about his feelings and then he chose to act against them with this like authoritative thunderous like, no, not gonna let myself go there. And that is the glory of Jesus' obedience. Adam, the first man, sinned by saying no to God. Jesus saves by saying no to himself. And then you see his resolve in his submission. For this reason, I've come. Father, you know what? Father, glorify your name. Listen, there is no Christianity without this. Christianity is not an escape from suffering. It's the occasion for more suffering than the normal person experiences. Christians don't experience less hardship and disappointment and loss and sadness. They experience more because, like Jesus, they choose it. They take up their cross and follow him into this dying love for others. And it's that act, here's the thing, it's that act of self-sacrifice that unleashes the power of the gospel beyond a single life or a single church. And so what's the takeaway? I've gone too long. (sighs) There's so much here. Let's just end with this. Believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel. That's the takeaway. Believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel. It's just Philippians 2. Have the mind of Christ. Jesus died so that we might live, so now we die so that others might live. Jesus laid aside his prerogatives. He said no to comfort. He made himself nothing, being a servant to others. And if you believe in him, then his life reproduces itself in you, which means the call on your life becomes to lay aside your prerogatives and to say no to your own comfort, say no to yourself, to willingly sacrifice yourself to serve others in a million different ways over and over again. That's how the work of the gospel grows beyond you, how what God is doing in you becomes a work that God is doing through you. And by the way, that's marriage. Your sacrificial love in a thousand different ways throughout a lifetime is what produces beauty and strength in your spouse. The work that God does in you becomes the work he is doing in the person you're married to. It's what parents are doing all the time, like all the time. Dying to themselves and dying to themselves and dying to themselves so that their kids can have what they need. It's the job description. Because the the gospel fruit we all want to see in our kids begins as gospel fruit that God is cultivating in us. And then it gets multiplied into them through our dying love for them. So parenting is the seed going into the ground, dying and bearing fruit in their kids. It's exhausting. (laughs) Which is why you have to have a handle on glory and success and discipleship. You have to know what you're getting yourself into. You see see what I'm saying? There's an institutional part of this too, holy cow. No, no, just real quick. One church becoming multiple churches, not just growing bigger, but multiplying. Community groups multiplying for the sake of new leaders emerging and new groups starting so that new people can have groups to be a part of themselves. Friendship groups being welcoming towards new people and going through the hard work of inviting those people in even if it changes the longstanding dynamic between those friends because God's work in you has to grow beyond you. Otherwise, the work in you begins to weaken. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Amen? Let's just stop there. Would you pray with me as we prepare to come to the table this morning? So, Father, we, we feel desperately the way that we still need to be shaped and formed in the life that you have led. Jesus, we feel desperately the need we have for you to come in your spirit and continue to work in us the same kind of dying love that you've shown on the cross, helping us to take up our own cross and follow after you. And so even as we celebrate the good news of the gospel for ourselves, help us to also stretch ourselves into the call of becoming the gospel in the way that we love and serve others as a church, as small groups in this church, as friend groups in this church, as people who are trying to figure out what marriage and family and friendship and all of these things looks like. This is a lot of work for us to do. So thank you for the promise of the Spirit to be wisdom empowering us to help us in this great work you've called us to. We thank you also for condescending to us and giving to us this meal to remind us yet again of your body broken and your blood shed for us, which is for us life and blessing, even as you call us to do the same thing in remembrance of you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. That is the promise of this benediction, that as he sends us now to the places where he has planted us, the first thing we have to realize is that we indeed have been planted. And if we have been planted, then there is a great work that God intends to do there. There is a harvest he is looking for. But as he sends us out into those harvest fields, the promise is that he goes before us and behind us, uh, that his smile and his favor rests upon us, that his spirit is in us towards this great work that he means to do. And so receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.